0: Spring is the most important time of the year for any gardener and here at Hamptons Estate Agents we're feeling particularly excited. At the end of May we're bringing our passion for homes to the Chelsea Flower Show, sponsoring a garden designed and built by Garden Club London. So whilst we cross our fingers for blue skies and another great British heat wave, what better way to celebrate than by getting outdoors, getting our hands a little dirty and enjoying a breath of fresh air. I'm Anita Rani, a self-confessed property addict, and this is No Place Like Home, a podcast brought to you by Hamptons Estate Agents, home experts since 1869. In this episode, we're exploring the benefits of outdoor living with Tony Woods, founder of Garden Club London, and the botany geek himself, James Wong. Here's a question. How do you fit a rainforest in a teacup? Well, who better to ask than Instagram's most popular plant geek? James Wong is a beloved figure online, the proud owner of 500 houseplants. He teaches us how every home can become its own jungle. Nice to see you, James. I think
1: I'm going to have to hang out with you as my ego coach. Because I am so much better about myself. Yeah, you should.
0: <laughs> I have built you up and now I'm going to crush no, oh, it. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not no, no, not not at all. I'm so excited that we actually finally get to sit down and have a chat. Um, I want to start at the beginning. Where did your love for the outdoors and plants and botany start?
1: So it's a question I never really know how to answer. Mm-hmm. And I used to feel like in my 20s, when people used to ask me that. That I had to come up with some kind of origin story. Yeah. Like, like oh, every
0: good superhero.
1: Exactly, right? Or, or supervillain. Because, um, you know, <laughs> I, I am kind of, you know, poison ivy wannabe. I, I used to think that, okay, well, I grew up in the tropics. So if you're in the tropics, you're around plants more often. Where did you grow up? In Singapore. So the plants are around you all the time. Um, they're actively growing all the time. And so if you're exposed to something for more time, you're more likely to be interested, right? Then I also thought, well, my grandma used to take me around the garden in, in Borneo. My dad's from Borneo and it's close to Singapore, so we used to go back. And she'd show me stuff. And um in that environment, plants aren't like outdoor soft furnishing. Plants are useful objects. So she'd go through, you know, it'd start to rain in the middle of the garden, she'd grab a palm leaf, two seconds of origami, you'd have a hat, you know? <laughs> she'd be like, This is good for a headache. This this is for your lunch later. And I one day I said to my brother, who's I mean his fascination is football, and I said, Paul, has anyone ever said to you, Paul, what made you first interested in football? Did you have like a really inspirational teacher? Because that's what people say to me. Mm. Uh, Does it run in your family, this interest in football? <laughs> and he's like, no, because football's obviously interesting and plants aren't.
0: Oh, and, ouch.
1: And, I know, yeah. We had a fractured relationship. And <laughs> <laughs> and I never
0: spoke
1: to him again. <laughs> well, I, I kind of thought it when he said that, I was like, oh, when people ask me that, it's because they think it's strange that I'm... Yeah. Not inter- that I'm interested in plants. I think it's weird that people aren't interested in plants. Like every aspect of our basic instincts, our primary biology, like the the, fa- the fact that our eyes are on the front of our head rather than the sides, like most herbivores. Um, the fact that we could see red, green color vision, the very way we see the world is dictated by billions of years of co-evolution with plants. They've made us who we are in every way. Uh, and they're the solution to every major problem that faces humanity, um, from climate change and biodiversity loss to to uh, food security, to getting over the next pandemic. All of those things rely on plants. So I kind of feel like, well, I, I guess I have to use Instagram to try and convince people that plants are relevant <laughs> and cool. John,
0: my next question was going to be, how do you convince someone who has no interest in plants that they should have an interest? I think you've just done it.
1: That's kind of you. That's kind of what I try and do.
0: Plants are life.
1: Yeah, I think it also comes down to the way that we're taught about it. Yes. So um, animal science, animal scientists outnumber plant scientists these days, 500 to 1. Uh, there's no botany degree left in the UK as a straight botany degree. No. That closed 10 years ago. Um, and this doesn't happen in other countries, but definitely has happened in the UK.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's how we tell people about plants. So one of the problems with people who really like plants is that I think that people who are fascinated by plants and people who have great social skills those two bubbles that vendor <laughs> brand very rarely crosses over and particularly the kind of person that wants to get up on a soapbox and say look at me like we like plants because we don't like people so
0: you're a rare breed you're a rare species
1: uh i i don't know i i i feel like it's important to do that but i'm an introvert and i uh, also i mean the worst thing is getting recognized in a supermarket queue. It's like, the, it literally ruins my whole day having to be nice to strangers. Um, so <laughs> so I try and do that. But when we learn about plants as a kid, what we do is uh, we learn the photosynthesis diagram. Yep. I probably couldn't draw that right now, like off the top of my head, mm. even though I should be able to as a botanist. When we learn about animals, we watch the magic of something being chased down on the Serengeti with David Attenborough. Yep. And I think that's the problem. We have a problem of communicating how plants are interesting and why they're interesting and we can take them for granted particularly in the UK ironically because we love plants so much as a culture in terms of gardening it's so easy to dismiss it as essentially like laying out doilies yeah Um, and like you know you know those makeover shows where they would light the candles and chuck out the cushions at the last minute that's how garden makeover treated plants like they had three quarters of the show everything else and then they'd quickly bang the plants in and then bugger off Oh, then they'd quick. You can say, sorry, don't worry. There's
0: a lot of adults listening to this, okay. but they won't mind. We can apologize if see, anyone. Well,
1: see, what here's what I said about botanists and social skills.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was just proving it. Um, what's an ethnobotanist?
1: Okay, so an ethnobotanist is a very misleading title, I think, but we're stuck with it. Um, it's, so it's a type of botanist that specifically focuses on plant use. Mm. So loads of people assume that it's like, I, I guess, the origins of plants or kind of uh, different genetic variations with the plants because they think of ethnicity. It originally was the study of um, the botany of other cultures. It's just that other cultures always use plants. Mm. So a synonym is economic botany, which I would prefer, but we're stuck with it. It's, we've used it for 100 years. So ethnobotany is the study of human plant use.
0: I have to say, ethnobotany sounds better than economic botany.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's like a bit cleaner and easier to say. So whether it's food, medicine, Mm -hmm. textiles, perfumery, I mean, there's so many specialisms because plants are used for so many things, Um, even like biofuel nowadays.
0: So give us um, some plants that have um, added benefits that people might not know about. Let's give some... Oh god. Yeah. I know um, I know this is there's a ho- we've opened a whole can of worms but let's just oh, wow. start with something really basic.
1: 400,000 plant species on earth. We don't really even know how many. It's an estimate because yeah. we record newly to science about 1,000 every year. So a lot to pick from. Off the top of my head, uh, wormwood is an interesting one. Okay. So it's a common weed species. Uh, it's used there are lots of different species within that but um, one of them is commonly used to uh, in absinthe for example so if you've ever drank absinthe you've yeah. drunk wormwood it's a bitter chemical um, for years so no
0: but don't start kind of trying to produce absinthe from your from wormwood at home
1: uh, you probably shouldn't it, no, it don't can do be that. toxic in large quantities as okay. well and there's lots of specific varieties but when you buy it that's what that's what's in it in in the safe amount
0: see I'm yeah. all about using plants. Uh, Within the home, but maybe that's also because um, growing up in an Indian household, you know, we understand that where food comes from and kind of using herbs and whatnot, but I have an aloe vera in my house okay, and I often just break it open and use what's inside it to rub on my skin. Is that a good thing?
1: There's actually loads of evidence for that, um, which is really exciting to hear. And it's one of the few plants, it's called a cultigen. There's a specific term for it.
0: What does that mean?
1: Uh, it means it's a plant that we has been cultivated for so long that we actually have no idea where it's from in the wild. It's not found in the wild anymore. It's been so part of human history for that many thousands of years that it's only known in cultivation. We have no idea where in the world it comes from. And that happens with really very few plants, which can be in part of that list. And it's plants that have been cultivated for quite that long. So it shows how important it is to our species, to our civilization.
0: You have a huge following on Instagram. People want to watch you look after your 500 houseplants. How did all of that begin?
1: I'm not sure they want to watch me do it. I just think they they want to... What is that? Yeah, I think they're really interested in the plants and I give people advice about it. Well, you're um, an excellent yeah.
0: communicator, you know. Oh, it's, I think it's a com- yeah a combination, um, definitely.
1: I was originally sort of forced to do Instagram for <laughs> work. Well, yeah. People said, you have to do it. It's what all the cool kids are doing. I'm not a cool kid. And I was like, I don't, I don't go to glamorous parties. I have a phobia until very recently of taking a photograph of myself. Like, I l- literally had one that I had to do for a security pass and my face is is not happy at the time, Um, it was literally impossible for me to take a photograph of myself. Uh, So I thought, what am I going to show people? I mean, I just sit at home on a Friday night, you know, (laughs) when it's raining outside and like, Poke my terrarians. <laughs> I even have like long That's not a euphemism. Tweezers. No, it's not. <laughs> my, my OnlyFans account would not go well. I, I have all of these like long tweezers and long handle scissors. Did and you I say
0: OnlyFans like, or OnlyFans? Only fans. Oh, only fans, very good. <laughs> very good.
1: I have these like long paint brushes and I'll kind of like stroke the moss in them and I'll take out any little bits of things that I don't like. And to me, that's like my perfect Saturday night. And so what if, I mean, I can show people that and one of my colleagues said, well, just do that, James. I give, I've given up. So I did that. And and who knows? People actually want to watch that. Why do you um, think that is? Um, I think there's a few reasons. I think people are more, there's been a big renaissance in the interest in plants. Yeah. And I think for one of the things that's definitely been a driver of social media, um, I think that the reason why social media has worked in doing it is because that traditional garden media has lots of conventions. And it has lots of conventions that I think... Probably subconsciously, but I think sometimes intentionally isolate people. Mm. Um, they exclude people. There's this idea that to be a good gardener, to be a proper, inverted commerce gardener, uh, you have to have rolling acres of Dorset. You have to dress like a Victorian painter. <laughs> you have to hold kind of tools that no one in actual commercial horticulture has used for 70 years. So it's all kind of, it's all set in about 1880. Mm. Uh, and you have to kind of sew tomatoes every March in a dirty sweater. And, you know, I mean, I like doing that, but there are many flavours. It's kind of, I love vanilla. It's one of my favourite flavours. But imagine if you had an ice cream store that only sold vanilla. What if you don't like vanilla? There's all these other flavours there. And I think conventional horticulture really sells something. It does it really well. It does it um, beautifully. It does it really convincingly to people who like vanilla ice cream. But guess what? There are other flavours out there. Yeah. And um, things like Instagram have allowed people to show that horticulture is so much more diverse and so much more interesting and, inclusive. and so much more global. And sometimes, in fact, quite often, I'm meant to feel like I'm the only person. So people will use lots of code words. They'll say you're not a proper gardener.
0: To you? Yeah, all the time. Shush.
1: Yeah, no, like it's, it's very...
0: Because you um, have 500 indoor plants. Uh,
1: well, there's Does, lots of is... things. Um, if you don't have a double barrel surname... Uh, if you don't wear a suit, people will yeah, well, people have definitely come up to me and fixed the like, one time I did wear a suit. They come up and fix my tie. And like this guy grabbed like like right here, and he goes, This is how British people do it. Shush! And I was like, I just learned it on YouTube this morning, okay. I've never I've never done a tie in my life. Um so
0: So do you feel like a and how do you feel then as the outsider in an environment like that? Um
1: well at first I like when I first started doing it I didn't feel like the outsider because I guess I didn't pick up on the shots so the small social cues like the yeah, time the
0: thing the microaggressions. And
1: then and then eventually you do pick up on them and yeah. I actually as you become I don't mean to say this in a in a egotistical way but as you become more successful that happens yeah. more. Yeah. So then you notice it. And I think things like Instagram are just a what, a clean slate. So and I think that mu- it's much more to a degree, I mean, there's the algorithm, but apart from that, it's much more democratic. So anyone can set up their own account and people like it or they don't like it. Yeah. They don't have to convince a gatekeeper about whether the end, the end product, the end audience will like it. Yeah. So, I mean, I can go on to Instagram and I can learn about this, this, this Chinese account. And I think the guy's probably like in his mid-20s and he does the most amazing bonsai. Um, and then I can go to, like, the other side of the world, to Brazil, yeah. and see a company that's making these amazing swimming pools filled with koi. So they're natural swimming pools, naturally filtered. I would never see that in gardening media in the UK. No. It, so yeah, it's you, you global. go all over the world. Mm. Um, and you see things that... It might be someone guy's just back bedroom where he's doing stuff.
0: So. And you've done a new series um, for Instagram. You went to Singapore.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, I grew up there. And Singapore um, is really progressive in terms of its horticulture it's invested a huge amount um, in trying to bring horticulture into the center of cities so it's it's sort of about horticulture but it's mainly about urban greening and how cities could be made greener and it's something that i'd always wanted to cover um and i don't think that traditional media has allowed me to do that but things like instagram do so i went i found a this i found this amazing couple in lockdown It was a bit miserable. It was a bit grey. Spent a lot of time on the ground. And I found this couple who were doing these really, really beautiful photographs of Singapore. And I assumed that they were professional photographers. At the time, one of them was an English teacher uh, and the other one was a graphic designer. And they just were taking photographs originally on their phones. And I just thought their stuff was so beautiful. I was like, guys, when lockdown ends, I'm going to come visit you. And we're going to make some amazing films about all the crazy, like, parks and gardens that are hanging off the tops of skyscrapers, hotels that are completely wrapped in foliage. Amazing. We're going to make some stuff and we're going to show people because no one knows this stuff exists. I, I kind of thought, like, as I was meeting them, this is the biggest risk. I've just flown across the other side of the world and I've, like, signed up to, to do everything. You'd- and I don't
0: know who these people are. In fact, we actually met. You've done a lot of stuff traveling around. The most We've got to talk about the most random place. <laughs> I was filming a documentary about the Japanese population decline. I was in this tiny ghost town. It was a ghost town. There was nobody living there. The whole point of me being there was that the population (laughs) has declined so much that look at this town that was once thriving, now there's nobody here. Only film crew, until there's another film crew, and it's you. (laughs) So
1: I was there to film a very similar thing. (laughs) I was making a series on the world's most expensive ingredients, and the most expensive fruit in the world is a melon that's grown in in Japan, oh. and the whole point is that this mining town had collapsed, and there was no industry there, so they set up randomly melon cultivation as its thing and I remember I arrived I'd flown from from London to Singapore, Singapore to Tokyo, Tokyo to Osaka, and then driven seven hours to this random place, and I got out the car I was like that's a neat run yeah. <laughs> It's weird to go over and say, hi, I've never met you before, but we, were, but we work for the same people.
0: Yeah, we knew each other. And also, yeah. we were the only people there. I'm fascinated by Singapore and the way that it, the, the urban environment and green space works there. Because yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's conscious. They've done it on purpose. Can you just explain to people yeah. who don't know anything about the place? Okay,
1: so uh, Singapore is an ex-British colony. Um, it was part of Malaysia until the early 60s. And then it was kind of separated off. So it's this tiny island about half the size of London with about half the population of London. It's incredibly densely populated, uh, tiny city-state. And one of the fascinating things is, from its very conception, it was set up to be a garden city. they essentially decided to take a British model that had happened in the kind of late Victorian period, and gone, you know what? The Brits kind of had a great idea with that, and then they abandoned it. Mm. We could do that here, but with skyscrapers and palm trees, couldn't we? It's
0: the future.
1: And I just kind of thought, like, if you try and think back to that era, that's just nuts in terms of the ambition. Like, let's take this really good idea Mm. that no one's ever tested before outside of Britain, kind of failed in Britain because they did a really good job and then they stopped doing it for some reason. Um, But why don't we do it? And it was done essentially to attract foreign investment in and also help improve the well-being of people who lived in a very, very overpopulated, poorly resourced concrete city. And in that time period, there's, I mean, even since I was a kid, so, you know, I was growing up in the 80s, which is only 20 20 years after independence. um, It's just kind of astonishing what they've been able to achieve. So it's now the world's most biodiverse capital city. Um, When I was growing up, all of these animals that you'd learn about from books that were long extinct, mm. uh, that you'd have to go to Malaysia in the middle of a jungle to find. You now have otters swimming in the equivalent of like Canada Water's business bank fountains. Amazing, um,
0: so it's worked. Hornbills that
1: are nesting in trees. Yeah, so they planted a million trees. Uh, now they have some really strict planning laws. So if you build a new building, you have to create the same amount of green space as, as a minimum, as the plot the building sits on, wrapped around the surface of the building. So you have these new buildings, which are almost literally entirely covered in green jungles. Um, And it kind of, you look at it and you just feel like, even when you're standing in front of it, you're like, is this CGI? Because I've only seen this in CGI, it's real. I can actually touch the plants and I don't quite believe it. So I kind of thought it was a shame that plant people all over the world never see that stuff. And Singaporeans take it for granted Mm. because that's just what buildings look like. So
0: great. Such Um, great city planning, isn't it? It's just so forward thinking and it's just... And also just the environment it creates for the people who live there. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about well-being because... And and what, what... having plants around you can actually do for you?
1: Mm -hmm. For ages, there was some relatively good evidence from what we call observational trials that demonstrate that simply being around plants, simply looking at them, can have um, remarkable benefits, uh, allegedly, on um, mental and physical health. But these are what we call observational trials. And I'll explain what that means. This is, let's look at uh, health outcomes across a population and let's plot them on a map and let's see how close these outcomes are to parks, for example. Mm-hmm. And you can look at and you can find that people who live closer to parks have better health outcomes. You, look at, you can look at hospital healing rates and you can look at whether the patients in, in, who have different outcomes had views of green space or not. However, an observational trial just looks at correlation. It doesn't mean causation. Mm -hmm. So for example, rich people tend to live near parks. Yeah. And money and having access to wealth is one of the key determinants of health. So maybe, and particularly some of these trials were done in the U.S., maybe it's just they could afford private healthcare. Yeah. Maybe it didn't actually they have had anything better diets, to do with the plants. Though, exactly, yeah. all of the different outcomes. Yeah. But now we've had what we call intervention studies, which are totally different. And what these do is they take a control group of people and non-control groups, so an intervention group, and they subject only that one group. They keep everything else the same to adding plants to their life and they're able to see a difference and the most fascinating thing is so this is such like so much better scientific evidence from from a geeky science, plant science point of view because i liked to believe the trials before but we didn't know for sure now it's really quite conclusive and it's coming out with everything and one of the fascinating things is in some studies it appears that the plants don't even have to be real People just have to perceive that there are plants around them. What? Um, So if you chuck a bunch of blokes, uh, it usually is blokes actually, on a treadmill or on a stationary bike, and you show them screens projecting images of the natural world, not only do they run for longer, the exercise feels easier, the mental health benefits which are associated with exercise, such as uh, uh, improved self-worth and reduction in stress chemicals, are enhanced when they exercise in a green view significantly more than if they just exercise. it's not even a real green view. It's just a, like a digital screen showing, showing them something that looks like a green view. This is
0: blowing my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: wildly fascinating.
0: Also delights me. And also it really comes back to that fundamental, we are part of nature. You know, we need that grass underfoot or even not even real grass. Just look at the grass. Just pretend Um, you imagine grass.
1: See, this is the thing. So we've evolved over billions of years to have a preferred ideal habitat. And in the same way that if you don't eat or if you're exposed to stress, you you have biological consequences to that. We've evolved to have a preferred habitat, which is green space. Mm. So when we're given that, it actually has significant wider effects.
0: What should someone grow if they want to just get something easy that they will be able to keep alive and maybe has some benefits to it as well? Okay,
1: well, here's the one, the first thing I would, I'd like to question your question. I sound a little (laughs) bit like a politician at the moment. I think lots of people have a, are almost like an irrational fear about the fact that they kill plants. And I think it's from two things. One is the first plant they grow, when you ask people who say this, almost every time at Supermarket Basil.
0: Mm. Supermarket
1: Basil (laughs) is designed to die, so you buy a new one.
0: (gasps) It's designed to die. They they
1: cram loads of tiny plants into a pot to give you the illusion of a really lush pot. And the idea is that they eventually start competing with themselves and die. Mm. So you buy another one. So you're hooked into buying plants. I think a lot of people buy that once. They kill it. They never go back again. You're so So right. The gateway drug is a bad experience, (laughs) and (laughs) we never get them on team horticulture. So firstly, the most important thing to know is that when I get together with all my geek plant friends, and, you know, I have some, like, really talented, much more talented than me plant friends, people who work at the Royal Horticultural Society, people who work at Kew Gardens. Do you know what we talk about in the pub? All the plants we've killed. Oh, I tried again with this one. I couldn't figure, what's the secret? Oh, I've tried this. Oh,
0: you've made us all feel better now. So,
1: exactly. First thing is, do not, like, I've...
0: Don't freak out.
1: In the same way that to bake a cake, you have to burn loads. You have to fail with plants. Secondly, the most important thing is to pick something that's really the opposite of supermarket basil, the thing that's almost indestructible. I'll start with something like uh, snake plant, Sansevieria, or Aspidistra, cast iron plant, called it for a reason. Um, They are all, like, I was once delivered an asperidistra plant um, to my mum's house, and she wasn't in, so they put it in this cupboard outside and closed it in the box. Yeah. She didn't discover it, I think, for two months, (sighs) opened it, and of course, like, anything else would be dead. This thing was clinging to life but and not watered, coast. not even any light. It wasn't It wasn't happy, it was on its last legs, but it was still alive after two months in a dark box. Brilliant. Um, so if it survives that, it'll survive anywhere.
0: Aspidistra, and what about something that we want to be able to cook with, or make tea out of, or okay. something that might have some added health benefits?
1: So I would go for citrus hystrix. Uh, they call it muck root lime. So if you want to go, like very often when you go to a houseplant section, there'll be lots of citrus plants. The citrus plant will cost you hundreds of times more than the entire amount of citrus fruit you will get out of that plant. However, if you're growing the leaves, macro lime leaves are used in like Thai cooking, they're used in like the whole of Asian cooking. They're incredibly expensive to buy, but the plants aren't. So I'd grow something like that, needs loads of light. uh, So a really, really bright facing windowsill, but it'll give you more leaves than you could ever eat. And it's a flavor that maybe if you try and buy the leaves, they never taste as good as if you grow them.
0: Very true. James Wong, I have absolutely loved geeking out about plants with you. Okay, you, usually
1: people don't say that. I can actually see their eyes glazing over. No, I talk too much you, about My them. eyes
0: have done the opposite. Okay, they good, have come good. to life. You have absolutely sold your passion. Oh, one more on Team Plant Geek. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> and I'm not going to fear plants anymore. I'm going to go home and, well, you know, I have kept some alive. I just want to put that out there before people think that I am. The
1: judge you? Yeah. Oh, I've killed thousands, thousands and thousands. You just never post about that on Instagram.
0: Okay, I don't believe that you have killed thousands, but it's nice that you've said it to make the rest of us feel better. Are you up for a bit of a challenge?
1: What's the challenge?
0: The challenge is... I'm going to give you 60 seconds on this stopwatch. Oh, great. And you're going to give us... Give
1: Asian people an exam challenge. And yeah. expect them not to be nervous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I and can your, just feel look, my mum never she, speaking to you I was just going to say, no, and no, your mum is listening.
1: Oh, great. As is okay. my mum,
0: so the pressure is on.
1: I have to get over 99%. Fine.
0: Five, <laughs> you've got 60 seconds to give us your five top tips to look after our houseplants. Are you ready? Okay. Your time starts now.
1: The top question people ask about houseplants is how much water, that's not the first question, it's how much light. Uh, Plants are living solar panels, that's one. uh, If it's cacti, they have to be no more than one meter away from a window, in fact probably almost touching the glass. Uh, Secondly, never put cacti in terrariums, Uh, it's the worst possible thing for them. Moss ferns, orchids, low-light-needing plants go in those environments. Don't worry about over... Don't worry about watering your plants too often. Uh, it's much better to let plants dry out than to overwater them, and plants will normally tell you that. Last one. Oh, gosh, what's the last one? Um. Uh, oh, gosh, damn it. Oh, no, I'm not ah! watching this.
0: <laughs> ah! Freshers
1: <laughs> up. Oh, don't get a houseplant just because everyone's forgetting it on Instagram. Just get what you like.
0: 49 seconds, you smashed it. Your mum will be proud.
1: I, it's good because I can make up for failing GCSE maths. And, you know, I'm 41. I've still not gotten over her anger from that.
0: <laughs> James, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being so passionate. I loved it. Tony Woods is the Managing Director of Garden Club London, an author and passionate horticulturalist. He was awarded Young Garden Designer of the Year at the Chelsea Flower Show in 2013. And in 2022, Tony received an RHS gold medal for a garden sanctuary, a garden sponsored by Hamptons. Garden Club London, which Tony founded in 2012, is now one of the leading urban design studios in the UK. In 2023, they're returning to the Chelsea Flower Show with Hamptons this time with a garden inspired by Mediterranean horticulture, landscape and lifestyle. Welcome, Tony. Nice to see you. Before we get on to talking about the Mediterranean garden, let's hear a bit about your own backstory. When did you first become interested in gardening?
2: From a really, really young age. So I grew up in the countryside. Um, I lived around farms and gardens and um, just instinctively knew that Horticulture and gardening was something that I really wanted to do. So um walked into the career's office at school, said what I wanted to do, and I think the career's advisor was a bit like, well, well wait a minute, we need we need to discuss this. So um, probably one of the few people that kind of had a natural direction, if you like.
0: Yeah, because who knows when they go and see the career's advisor what they want to do. Whereabouts in the country was that? Where where were you? We? Um,
2: that was in the lake district, so like, oh, come on, masses Tony. of inspiration. Um, yeah, natural. Water, landscape, uh, yeah, every, just massive inspiration. So a lot of that um, kind of fed into the designs that I've created for shows in the past or the shows that we do now. So in our last garden for Hamptons, it was very naturalistic. It was um, very immersive in nature and, and woodland.
0: Yeah, I think if you grow up in a place like the Lake District, you can't help but be inspired and, and be used to outdoor living because you've got such beautiful nature on tap.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's everything. It's the sound, it's the smell, it's, you know, in the winter, in the summer, it's so different as well. And a lot of the work that we do now is very much about the detail and attention. But you can look in something like a dry stone wall and just found so much inspiration Um, and then did higher education part time. When I finished that, I literally packed my backpack, got on the train to London, applied for some jobs, uh, worked for a few companies for a couple of years. Um, But what I saw more and more was just that we were having like really hard landscapes so lots of paving, lots of walls. And when I was sent there to plant them, clients would be like, oh, can we have some more greenery, some more planting? And I was like, well, yeah, that's what gardens should be about, especially urban gardens. So um, then I established Garden Club in 2012 um, with the intention of it being very plant focused, which it is. Um, And often people say there is something different about your gardens. I just I can't put my finger on it. But if you Mm. Google garden designers in London all of our gardens are the green ones they're full of plants and we only drop in essential hard landscaping so it's very very immersive and naturalistic I was kind of a, quite a young entrepreneur so I'd be like selling my plants or selling
0: so you weren't bothered about collecting and swapping football stickers for you it was uh seeds
2: yeah pretty, <laughs> I, I would probably I had a football sticker album but just to try and fit in a bit more um so yeah if I had like My poor brother would be like, we'd be driving in with my parents at the weekend and he'd be like, we'd go past the nursery or garden centre and he'd be like, please don't stop, please don't stop, please don't stop. And then he'd just like look back on his frustration of like how embarrassing it was to have a brother who was like so obsessed with plants. And
0: how old were you?
2: 12, 13. What was that? Just an obsession with plants, really. And I think, but now, um, one of the reasons that Garden Club London is called Garden Club London is because when I was at school, I joined the school garden club and there were about four of us but we got kind of the mick taken out of us we got bullied it was like it's such a sad thing to do whereas now gardening in schools is massive it's yeah. so cool to garden it's so cool to grow things
0: you look at a space outdoors and see what you can do with it i look at a space outdoors and just freak out
2: i play a movie in my mind of what this garden looks like when it's finished so oh, i love that I, I walk through it i i you know, brush against the plants, I smell the scents, I hear any some water. Um, and you kind of zone out sometimes from a client when you're stood there in this barren backyard and you, and you have to kind of play this movie and like kind of get as many ideas down on paper as you can. So yeah. how
0: did the collaboration come about with Hamptons?
2: So um, we approached Hamptons and said, look, we've got this concept for a show garden at Chelsea. We think it works really well with what you do, with with, um, with people's home and changing habits. So the idea was that you'd have a really kind of short but tranquil um commute over a stream and through this naturalistic garden uh, you would get to a yoga deck and then you cross the yoga deck and you get to this really amazing garden studio home office uh, with log burning stove with a beautiful view on, of a of a pool When
0: are we when am I moving in?
2: When we talk to Hamptons you know it's Hamptons are our client we've haven't we haven't imagined client and you know will it live up to the expectations mm. so for me you know, it's kind of the pressure's on and, you know, you do doubt, you have to question yourself continuously. Um, And at Chelsea, you have the added stress of seasonality, snow in March and April, cold temperatures, plants flowering too soon, plants flowering too late. Um, The whole logistics of doing something that would usually take 14 weeks in about two weeks. Um, So, but at the end of it, you just, yeah, you have this, this piece of magic and it's quite overwhelming and mm. um, emotional as well when you kind of stand back and see it for the first time.
0: So tell us about uh, the Mediterranean garden that people will be able to go and see this year.
2: When we completed the last garden, um, Hamptons have been really fun to work with. And again, I think, you know, now people are starting to travel more or explore a bit more. So um, Filippo is um, going to design the garden this year.
0: And this is Filippo Desta yeah tell us
2: about him when i'm the chaos filippo is the calm who has the plants he has it you know he has the hose pipe he has everything ready to go so over the last couple of years we've kind of started to hand the baton to some of our other younger designers um so this time filippo who's italian um who is an absolutely mad keen plantsman like myself um it felt really natural that he should kind of take the baton take the design forwards um and create this garden And and it works really well and so many levels of lifestyle um of aesthetic but also messages like climate change so drought tolerant planting sustainability um mm-hmm. preserving water in the garden as well
0: well this is really interesting territory because a lot of our listeners who are keen gardeners will be thinking about sustainability so what little tips can you give them
2: so i went to the garden center at the weekend and i thought wow look all these like plastic pots we're still buying them but then we buy a plant and we throw the pot away so yeah. i think working as a community and we've free cycling schemes, you can get so many free plants. Um, But again, just using yogurt pots, using containers, using takeaway trays to propagate seedlings, um, A, saves you money, B, it's great for the environment. When you do manage to grow something or you haven't killed something, then that's massive. And that's a big message of the Hamptons Mediterranean garden. It's that Mediterranean lifestyle of coming together, of sharing, of the way you prepare the food together, you harvest what's in season. Um, and that that is really healthy and anyone can do that at home whether it's growing potatoes in a bucket or something in a window box or planting an apple tree in your your garden you know it's got longevity and it's got something that will come year after year.
0: I am going to share with everyone listening that I admitted to Tony which is probably the worst thing you can do when you've got a garden expert coming on to say I was I'm death to all plants Um, which uh, I am or I have been but during lockdown I absolutely uh, got involved in planting and growing and it was the most satisfying, nurturing thing to be able to do, to watch my plants grow and my tomatoes come and my potatoes come yeah. and then cook them. It was the well-being aspect of it was huge. And like you say, you touched on that with your Mediterranean garden, that outdoor lifestyle. Let's explore that a little bit more. Like what is it about the Mediterranean garden and the lifestyle that is so beneficial?
2: I think ultimately a lot of it is linked to the diet, but if we look at sustainability of of the diet and the food, so within the Hamptons Mediterranean Garden, we've got, um, you know, we're not growing like lots of lettuce and salads and things that need lots of water and lots of care. We're growing lots of um, very kind of naturalized fruit and berries and nuts. There are things that you can forage or harvest from the garden. The key to a Chelsea garden is you have to walk into it and just be immersed in an atmosphere if if the atmosphere isn't there then you fail so
0: and also outdoor living with all the great produce that you've grown that you've nurtured that you know is good for you and surrounded by community people that you love and that you want to spend time with in that environment
2: gardening communities and gardening Mm. in the community that again is so important for people's health it you know can combat loneliness um, this year we've seen a huge trend in um, apps where you can garden share so you can borrow someone's dog and take that for a walk and you've been mm. able to do that for a few years. And now you, if you're um, perhaps less mobile or, or um, you have a, a garden you're overwhelmed with, you know, we've got huge allotment waiting list. So people are kind of saying, well, you can come and cut my grass or enjoy the garden or grow some veg. Um, and you know I think that's brilliant
0: Tony thank you so much it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and good luck at Chelsea
2: thank you very much
0: now I'm particularly pleased we've had the opportunity to talk not just about gardening but also the positive impact it can have for mental health and well-being as we've discussed outdoor living can give us time to unwind to offer care to something living and to reap the rewards of green space and those beautiful blue skies with this in mind Hamptons are proud to be celebrating our partner with mind founded in 1946 mind is the largest mental health charity in the uk and since last year hamptons have been working to raise funds and spread awareness for expertise on mental health treatments and advice or if you'd like to donate you can visit mind at mind.org.uk now, that may well be all we have time for, but you can join the conversation online using our hashtag, No Place Like Hamptons. And if you've been inspired by our episode, we would love to see your gardening progress from blossoming beds to terraced terrariums. Thank you to my wonderful guests, James Wong and Tony Woods. And thanks to you, our listeners. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and follow Hamptons on social media. We're here for you, whatever your property journey. But for now, until next time, I'm Anita Rani, once again reminding you that there is no place like home.